seems to be more and more prevalent is rape being used as a weapon of war. So this isn't rape happening just because of the chaos chaos of war or indeed to reward fighters. It's actually fighters being told and ordered to go and rape people as a strategy. Hello and welcome to the Matrix podcast. My name is Sam Knipes. I'm a barrister at Matrix in the UK and I'm here today with Sunday Times Chief Correspondent Christina Lamb and with international criminal defence lawyer Caroline Buisman. We're here to talk about Christina's new book, Our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women, as well as some of the themes that emerge from it in relation to how rape and violence against women has been dealt with on the international level. Christina, you've worked in war and combat zones for over 30 years as a journalist, um, and in your new book, you give a voice to the women of conflicts and a detailed and raw account of how, um, in war, um, rape is used by armies and terrorists and militia as a weapon designed to humiliate, oppress, and carry out ethnic cleansing. You've written a number of best-selling books prior to this one, but Our Bodies uh, is the first to give a global picture of this largely untold account of the impact of war on women and children. All this at a time when we're not only seeing the impact of the pandemic abroad and the increased difficulties that the shutting of borders, the restrictions on free movement place on anybody trying to flee a situation of abuse and persecution, but also soaring levels of domestic violence against women being reported um, in the UK. Before we delve into your book, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the uh, culture around war reporting. Typically, it seems to revolve around the stories of fighting, the stories of the soldiers, the battles, the weapons. And you've written in the book how during the first part of the Iraq war, the Sunday Times had no less than six correspondents on the ground. But you also write that when you read the reports afterwards, your three male colleagues and one of the two fellow female colleagues hadn't quoted a single Iraqi woman. So what's going on? Why, why is this? Why are these stories so untold? Well, thank you, Sam. Nice to be here. And um, that's a very good question. I think that largely the stories have been told by men, and so they've tended to talk to other men, and that they've thought that the most interesting thing happening in war is the fighting, which is generally between men. Um, and so what we call the bang bang. And so that has been very much the focus. And indeed, many female journalists have also focused on that too. But I do think in general, women correspondents are a bit more interested in how you live life during war. And that's the sort of thing that I've always been much more interested in. And how, because even, you know, take a war like Syria today, which has been going on for nine years, there's still millions of people living in Syria, uh, going to work, getting married, sending their kids to school, having children, um, as all of this is going on, you know, life doesn't stop. Afghanistan war has been going on for 40 years. So people have, you know, still having to try and maintain some kind of life with all hell going on around them. And to me, that's much more interesting than the actual fighting. 
So I always focused much more on that. But of course, uh, and to me, that's um, just as heroic, if not more so, than the people doing the fighting. But of course, there is a dark side to it too, and that's the uh, brutality against women and in particular sexual violence. Do you think this is um, something, the brutality against women, which is um, it, on the increase? Um, is it something that you're seeing more of um, in your war reporting, say, in the last decade than previously? And if so, why? Well, it's a good question whether it, you know, it seems to me there's much more of it. Is it because we're more aware of it or that people are talking about it more? But certainly in 33 years of doing this job, I've always talked to women, as I said. And um, in the last few years, I've seen much more sexual violence being used against women than at any time in my whole career. And I find that very shocking that in the 21st century that this is happening, such a terrible thing on such a wide scale, and that very little seems to be being done about it. I wonder whether also you might comment on the one of the other things which may be behind um, the underreporting and whether it's because the stories that you're um, telling are so uh, brutal, they're horrific, um, devastating. Uh, do you think there's a sense of them being so uncomfortable for people to read that they don't want to read about them? Um, whereas perhaps we're used to seeing um, pictures of, of male soldiers being blown up but we maybe we're less um, sensitized to those um, pictures oh absolutely definitely I mean I've had male editors saying to me that um, we shouldn't be reporting this that people don't want to read it um, um, and I find that ridiculous I mean just because something's uncomfortable doesn't mean that we shouldn't want to know about it, it we should on the contrary um, want to know about it and, and do something about it and um, particularly as it's something that seems to be getting worse and I think you know just to go back to that you know is, is it getting worse I think that I mean, one of the things that I've seen in recent years, I mean, the, the wars that are being fought are much more wars involving militias and movements and not between states and armies. And so um, these are people that are not following any rules of law, um, of war, and who are also fighting much more in civilian areas. So we've seen a big increase in the percentage of casualties that are civilians and in the same way, I think that the violence against women and children has increased. I mean, as you say, you've been reporting on uh, wars for um, many decades. Um, but was there a particular trigger which prompted you to write um, the book now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so in 2015, I was covering the refugee crisis in Europe and I was on a Greek island called Leros, a uh, very small and unusual island because it was once under uh, Italian control, Mussolini's control, and the architecture is not like other Greek islands. It's uh, 
very fascist kind of architecture. And uh, this island was also notorious because it had a an asylum on it, which is where all the most difficult cases of mental illness in Greece, people were taken to this asylum and it became uh, an infamous asylum because of the way people were kept in almost sort of medieval conditions, being chained up and... Um, and so there was a big expose and the um, asylum was closed down. So I went to this island um, in 2015 because refugees were coming across from Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq and other countries and crossing from Turkey to the Greek islands. And uh, quite a few of them landed in Leros. And I went to meet some of the refugees and um, they told me that they wanted to meet me in the asylum, which was next to the camp rather than inside the camp. And it was very kind of eerie because the asylum was had this history, but also was all in ruins and all kind of crumbling down. And there was all these iron bedsteads there and, and lots of the roof rafters had come down um, and I met this group of Yazidis and it was the first time I had ever met Yazidis and straight away you could see that something really terrible had happened to them. They, um, they were young women with children and the children were wandering around and almost falling in these holes and over all this masonry. It was quite dangerous and the women were not taking any notice. They, uh, they just seemed like something so awful had happened to them and all the light had gone from their eyes. So I started talking to them and they told me about being taken by Daesh or ISIS fighters um, and captured from their villages and taken and to a place called the Galaxy Market where they were divided up, whether they were considered ugly or beautiful. And then these fighters would come and touch their breasts and their hair and decide which one to take as their sabia or sex slave. Um, and they just told me this most horrendous stories. I'd never heard anything like that. And so I was really shocked. And they told me that there was a, a group that had been taken to Germany. Um, so I went to Germany to to talk to some of the women who'd also escaped, um, you know, many of them very young. And they just told me things like I'd never heard. I mean, they told me that they felt like they were considered to be less than ants of no worth whatsoever that they were traded from one to another one of them had told me that she was passed on 12 times between fighters um, another one told me that she was 16 and that the worst night of her life was when the fat ISIS judge that was raping her every day brought back a 10 year old and raped her in the room next door and she heard her crying for her mother all night um, I had never heard such terrible stories. And then around the same time, I was going to Nigeria, northern Nigeria a lot, because you remember that the Chibok girls, around uh, more than 200 girls, were taken from their dormitory in Chibok in the middle of the night by Boko Haram fighters and taken into the Sambisa forest and um, forced to be their, what they call, bushwives. 
And there was a big outcry about that at the time. And uh, I went and started um, traveling around the area and discovered that tens of thousands of girls were being taken, that this 219 was just the tip of the iceberg. Um, And then in 2017, so a couple of years after that, I was in Bangladesh when the Rohingya people were all being driven out of their homes in Burma or Myanmar by the Burmese army and Buddhist militias who were coming into their villages and setting fire to their hearts, killing the men and then tying the women to banana trees and gang raping them in front of their children. Um, and 700,000 people crossed that border um, in those few months. Uh, majority were women and children. Every single woman that I spoke to, I spoke to hundreds of women, told me similar stories. Um, and I just felt, you know, how can all these things be going on? This is the 21st century. This is something that is a war crime. And uh, nobody's doing anything about it or very little is being done. Yes, I mean, that's, a, I think, a good point um, which to bring um, in, in Caroline on the, on the subject of the, of, of the legal side. I mean, Caroline, you've been working in international criminal justice for 17 years. You've been in cases before the Rwanda Tribunal, the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Special Court for Sierra Leone and the ICC. And you've also been actively involved in the carrying out of um, investigations, Um, obviously obtaining accurate and detailed instructions from witnesses and from women is a critical part of the role of the lawyer. But how how do you do this when you're dealing with very severely traumatized female victims of war and rape? Yes, thank you very much for that opportunity. Um, Yeah, it's true that... um, I have been in many different conflicts as a lawyer and as someone who has been involved in interviewing different kinds of witnesses, including very vulnerable ones. Um, And one thing I would like to point out, because as you say, I, I was doing that as a defense lawyer for many, many years. And now for the first time, I'm actually part of a UN investigative mission um, and why I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm, I'm actually referring to that is that, of course, as a defensor, you don't necessarily have the same tools available to you. When you're dealing with vulnerable witnesses, it is important that you take the time and sometimes they need psychological assistance. Uh, what I didn't have as a defense counsel, well, I was also interviewing vulnerable witnesses. And I think that was really underestimated by the world who has a very black and white picture on like who are the victims and the perpetrators. But also on the defense side, you are dealing with a lot of vulnerable witnesses, but you don't necessarily have these tools available. I didn't have a team of psychologists that I could actually put in place. So uh, I have to say that the International Criminal Court was trying to actually address such gaps that we had faced in ad hoc tribunals like the Yugoslav tribunal, like the Wanda tribunal, the special court for Charlione. Uh, so there was more, if I, if I needed a psychologist to actually deal with my, my witness, I had that opportunity. But saying that, uh, what we're doing now, for instance, in an ideal situation, you first have an assessment, a psychological assessment by a psychologist to see what kind of measures should be put in place 
when you interview a witness um, and someone who's severely traumatized, you might need more breaks and, and so on. So this is sort of the practical side of it which again, I, I didn't always have available. There's a real human aspect to it. And I think you also have to follow your in intuition. I, I think it's important that we listen to the person we have in front of us. And we don't know, I appreciate it's important to, to see the gender in this. I also think it's important to distinguish one individual from another. Uh, sometimes you have NGOs who kind of represent the, the voice of, of the victims as a whole or a group as a whole. Well, in my experience, people uh, react differently. So there's, there's some assumptions that they're more comfortable, especially when dealing with sexual violence, that they're more comfortable with women. And that might be true in a majority of cases. It's clearly not the case. Always. I've seen some women actually prefer a male investigator or a male interpreter. So I think it's important that we, we keep an open mind and we listen very carefully to the person uh, we have in front of us and we don't patronize the person. Um, Christina, I'm not, I don't want to delve in um, to the actual stories in the book, not least because um, anybody who hasn't read it um, should do so. And um, it's fantastic, by the way, that you've been shortlisted for the um, Bailey Gifford Prize, more than um, deserved. Um, there are obviously um, accounts of um, Yazidis, Rohingya women. I mean, you've literally spoken to hundreds and hundreds of um people, as you said. I wanted to turn now to some of the really important wider themes um, that you bring out um, in the book. First of all, this, um, this issue about why women, children, and even babies, horrifically, are being used um, in war, um, and whether it's inevitable. You talk in the book about some conflicts where, in fact, rape um, and violence isn't used as much as others. Um, so why, why is it used in the first place? And, and why are there some wars in which it's less used? Well, I mean, it's hard to generalize because people will say there's always been rape in war. And um, I mean, that's true. And it, it's, and if you go back to ancient Greeks and Persians, the very first work of you know written history by Herodotus opens with abductions of, of women. But what I was looking at and what seems to be more and more prevalent is rape being used as a weapon of war. So this isn't rape happening just because of the chaos, chaos of war or indeed to reward fighters. It, it's actually fighters being told and ordered to go and rape people as a strategy. And, you know, sadly, it's a very effective weapon. It is, uh, you know, if you want to humiliate your enemy, to terrify people, to force people out of a, an area, then raping the women and children, you know, humiliates the men because it shows that they can't protect the women. Um, it's also used by some as a way to try and change the ethnic balance, so to impregnate um, the women and um, it's a very cheap weapon it costs less than a Kalashnikov so uh, this is sadly one of the problems and you know of course the way to make it more expensive would be to make it costly in terms of um, perpetrators being brought to justice but at the moment that's extremely rare. 
So, so we'll we'll come on to talk um, about the um, about people being brought to justice. But what about this? Um, you you refer to some wars where there is much much less violence against women and, and children. And are there any specific features of those wars um, that we can draw on? Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem clear that if you have more women in the military, then this happens less. So um, this, it, if you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, um, it, it happens much less. Um, but it, it has been used both, um, you have people taking over the religious narrative and, and claiming that there is a religious duty to, to, to do this, which is what ISIS, Daesh did with the Yazidis, saying that they were devil worshippers and that it was uh, the Islamic duty to, to go and enslave them. Um, you know, same if you go back to uh, what happened in the civil war uh, that led to the creation of Bangladesh in 1971, the Pakistani army Army that were going in were told very similar things. So uh, I think, you know, there's a move now to try and get faith leaders to speak out more on this. And I think actually that that would make quite a lot of difference um, and not allow the religious narrative to be taken over by these groups. Interesting. Caroline, can, can you comment um, on what you've seen in your um, c- cases that you've worked on? Um, are, do you see rape um, as a war weapon um, in pretty much every conflict situation you're working in? Um, I, I'm not sure I would say it's a war weapon in every conflict that I have uh, worked in. I do think it's it's a frequent recurrence in every war. I think that is that is quite clear, but the underlying reasons can vary. Uh, and it can vary from uh, sort of almost like a pillage concept, uh, soldiers or militia who are either disorganized, underpaid, and they see it almost like their salary. And so they go and they, they plunder a town and they take the women. It, it, it can, that sort of, the sort of disorganized chaos uh, that I've seen in, in, in some of the conflict areas. And then there's, of course, the other, um, then there's, there can be a tool of war, I think, in the former Yugoslavia, where it really it can be used against uh, an ethnic community for a variety of reasons. If you look at indeed the Yazidi that uh, that Christina just referred to, that's I, I'm not even sure I would refer to this as a weapon of war, but it is definitely an ideology that led to a policy that attacked a particular group, and they had different ways of um, like dealing with one group. To another, and and so yes, there was this religious justification. So I think what I've seen, there is definitely a, a common uh, theme, not just sexual violence, but I, uh, the, the the victims of war are often the civilians, a lot of them. Uh, but the reasons and and the causes they really vary from from conflict to conflict, in my experience. Thank you. So the second um, theme that I wanted to bring out was really this idea of um, the the huge difficulty for women um, 
not only in speaking out, um, but also the uh, and the consequences um, for for them um, for that. They're often ostracised from their family. Um, if um, if they have children, sometimes their children won't speak to them. You know, they blame themselves. But there's also this problem of being um, believed um, and 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 being sort of discredited um, ultimately in a in a tribunal. So, I mean, Christina, first of all, what what did the women get out of speaking to you? Um, was there a were there some sort of themes that you could draw out of that? What 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 did they? Why why did they want to speak? you because they did so freely speak to you I think that's so striking um I mean the women that I spoke to for this were uh, perhaps self-selecting in a way in that what I didn't do I didn't just go to villages or camps and say hey you know has anyone here been raped <laughs> speak English in that sort of apocryphal awful journalistic um way. Um, What I did was talk to organisations that are working with them, whether giving psychological support or legal support um, and talking to them about women who wanted to come forward and tell their story. Some of them were women that were trying to get justice. So they were people that had already decided that they wanted to speak out um, or, uh, for example, one camp that I went to, there was a, a trauma therapist working with a lot of the women and she told them there is this English woman coming. She's writing a book. Do any of you want to come and speak and talk? And I was surprised at how many people wanted to speak. Um, they wanted people to know what was happening. Um, they almost without exception, said to me that the worst thing that can happen to you in war is not necessarily being killed, but that this is worse than being killed. Um, And, you know, that's really shocking to hear from people. Um, And they uh, sometimes when, you know, these are really difficult stories to tell. I was very concerned about re-traumatizing people by, you know, getting them to talk about these things. And so it was very important that they told them exactly in the way that they wanted to. Sometimes it took a really long time. It took days. um, And all of them, you know, they wanted people to know more about them, that they weren't just their trauma, that they were actually people who had lives and dreams before. And um, so that people would think about other things, not just the terrible ordeal that they had gone through. And, you know, sometimes I would say to people, are you sure that you want to keep talking? Because it was so difficult for them to talk. And, you know, I remember one young girl, in particular, a 16-year-old girl saying to me, um, really fiercely when I said to her, don't you want to stop? And she said, no, I don't want to stop. I don't want anybody to be able to say they didn't know. And I think that was a really strong feeling. And I do think, you know, almost everyone I spoke to said they wanted justice. But uh, as you all know, I mean, justice means different things to different people. And I think that a lot of the people I spoke to actually wanted acknowledgement of what happened to them, not necessarily to see their perpetrator, you know, brought to court and and convicted and jailed, because actually in many of those places they knew it was extremely unlikely that that would happen. 
Um, but this, you know, one of the saddest things about this is that the people who have undergone this terrible ordeal are often the people that are then castigated and made to feel shame and ostracized. And, um, you know, it's completely the wrong way around. They didn't do anything wrong. Something terrible was done to them. And yet often their communities cast them out. And that's so sad. Yes, and I mean your book sort of brings out this um, so well, but but and also recognises these women as um, as the heroes um, that they are. You know, those who have have undergone this. Caroline, I wonder whether you can uh, comment on the measures that are in place in international tribunals to ensure that women can give evidence safely. Obviously, in um, in domestic courts in the UK, there are all sorts of witness protection schemes. But um, with these sort of um, war crimes tribunals and the, the sort of um, places that we're talking about where, the, where, these, where these women are, they're extremely unsafe um, if they do give evidence. So are the witness protection schemes, are they, are they available and are they functioning? Yes, thank you. I mean, there are definitely protective measures in place um, and every tribunal has a victim and witness protection unit. Uh, the, the extent to which they can in, uh, actually apply protective measures, of course, uh, varies from tribunal and from the complex situation. Um, there's a variety of things they can do when someone actually comes to court and testify, which would not be dissimilar from in the UK, for instance, they can, uh, there's, there's two types of measures, I would say, one to protect the security and safety and the other to protect the integrity. And the integrity is also about the, 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 the manner of questioning that is, uh, that is under the control of a judge. So you cannot be offensive uh, in, in a cross-examination. There are clear boundaries to what can be said and not. Um, and there are other, like, there could be situations where you uh, you avoid the confrontation between the accused and the uh, and the witness. It's very rare that they would actually um, have a private room. Uh, that is very rare, but they could have a, a, a sort of a way that you don't see the defendant. So these are more for the comfort of the the, the, the witness. You can give the witness a, a, a pseudonym so that people don't know uh, who the person is. But of course, in terms of protecting them in their own country, it's very limited what you can do as an international tribunal because you do not have the control and we do not have an international police force. So you have to then rely on the cooperation of the state and that really varies. What they can do, at least in some cases, and the International Criminal Court has applied this, they can relocate someone. And so they can take someone to another area, give them another identity and a new life in a way that can be in the same country or it can be in another country. But this is something, it should be the ultimate measure. It really, even nothing else can work. And um, in ICC, there was a moment where they did this quite a lot. Well, it's not only the financial burden, but it's also the bill of consequences you do not necessarily see in, in, in the beginning. 
saying maybe they want to rush out for their protection but at the same time uh, then they they are remote from their community and that is not easy so um these are not easy it's they're not easy answers. Um, I think the comfort, there is a lot more than you can do than in actual protection. And I think the comfort is important for the protection. You need to rely on the community, but to empower someone is, is important. Um, and I think to emphasize the principle of voluntariness. It is ultimately a voluntary process. And as Christine said, at least in my experience, a lot of them want justice and, and, and are, are are keen to do something to take that step but it's not without risk um, uh, or, or without a level of trauma um, but yeah there are I think they're trying at least what they can um, they're, they're trying to do also on an international level and do you actually need the women to give evidence in 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 every case um, firsthand? Or um, I mean, for example, in um, trafficking and slavery prosecutions now um, in the UK, and I know also in the US, they are um, often uh, being dealt with without the women actually giving um, evidence. So the the evidence would be given secondhand. Um, you know, through, for example, a, a police officer reporting on what they had um, discovered or found or had heard. I mean, is that something which can be done in, in the international level as well? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I think that's only more for future reference even. It's really in development. First of all, of course, there's video conference, which is more and more in use. Um, and I think will only be used more frequently. But yes, uh, there's also, of course, um, the defense can agree uh, on certain facts. So if it's for the contextual elements uh, and if it's not directly linked to the identification of a particular accused, which is often the case because often the accused are not the actual direct perpetrators, they would be somewhere in the back. So I, I think in many situations, they do not necessarily need to hear from them and uh, you can uh, admit into evidence their their statements in writing for instance and it's it, in, in international justice it's quite open uh, the rules of evidence are are not that strict but the more important ones uh, it's ultimately a, a decision it's ultimately a decision for the court, but the, the prosecutor would decide first, first of all, who is important enough to be called to testify. Uh, and the ultimate uh, decision lies with the judge. But yes, that is an, other, that is an alternative way of, of, of dealing with testimony. And one more thing, um, that's, for instance, in, in the situation of the Yazidi, they have been interviewed by many organizations. So that's another thing. Um, before you even start an interview, even if this is not in a court, you should really look at what they have already said to other organizations and identify the gaps first and see if it's really necessary to go to to have someone go through the the, the, the ultimately a, a traumatic like um, narrating traumatic events again. One of the things I hadn't really thought about until I was doing this book was we as journalists are often the first people 
the interview um, people that like this. I mean, for example, the Rohingya coming over the border into Bangladesh, we were all there saying, what happened to you? And they're telling us the story. And we're not trained to, to deal with people like that. And we may all be reporting it slightly differently. So I, I understand that that... It, could be very damaging then for any of these people if they did want to try and then pursue a legal case. Uh, I think Nadia Murad is actually a good example of this, the very brave uh, Yazidi woman who works very closely with the UN and it's sort of become the face of the Yazidis. But she and, and got the Nobel Peace Prize two years ago with Dr. McQuiggy. Um, but she has told her story so many times and it's been reported in slightly different ways many times. I understand it would be extremely difficult for her to get justice if she wanted to try. That's interesting. So that you know, may bring up the sort of uh, question about whether as journalists working in these areas that there may be more training um, needs to be done about the unintended consequences of reporting um, in this area. Um, I wanted to actually turn now to the third really important theme in your book, Christine, which is this sense of a real sense of a failure of international law, a failure of international institutions and tribunals to actually bring justice to this um, the, this group of women. And you refer to Christine Chinkin, um, colleague, um, dear colleague at Matrix and a professor at LSE and her path-breaking work on the gender bias of, uh, of international law. I mean, it seems extraordinary that um, rape in the Second World War was largely overlooked. Um, there, were, uh, there was evidence before the Nuremberg trials, but there were no charges ever put um, based on rape. Um, and until relatively recently, the international system has done done little. I mean, was this something which you have been thinking about for a while, Christine, in in your you know, in your work? What can be done? Well, I mean, you know, as I said, I became interested in this because I didn't understand why it was happening so much. And then when I started talking to people, I was shocked that, you know, that there weren't prosecutions and uh, people weren't being brought to to justice. And, uh, you know, the International Criminal Court is a good example that in 20 years has only managed to successfully prosecute one person, um, uh, Bosco from Congo last year uh, for this. So, um, and it did seem more than coincidence that where there have been breakthroughs in domestic courts more recently, that it seems to have always been a woman on the bench or a woman prosecutor. So clearly it's an area you know, where um, it's not taken as seriously by by men. I think, you know, the fact that uh, most of the wars at the end are negotiated by um, male peace, male negotiators um, is something that a reason that this isn't taken more seriously. Um, the UN voted 20 years ago, Resolution 1325, to have more women um, represented in peace negotiators, more, more women peacekeepers, but frankly, not very much progress has been made. There's not a single peace process going on in the world at the moment that's led by a woman. Uh, if you look at the major peace processes underway, Afghanistan, Tempest, of the negotiators are women, Yemen and uh, Libya, 
ones to end the military operations in Libya, not a single woman. Half the peace processes that have been signed over the last 20 years haven't even mentioned women in the peace processes. So, you know, I think that is a, a key thing at the beginning to have women represented in all these different areas, to have women peacekeepers, women negotiators, women judges. Um, because over and over again, I heard stories from women who tried to get justice who said that when they talked about what happened to them, I heard the same story in Rwanda and Argentina, uh, extremely different places and different kinds of women, um, where they were trying to tell what happened to them and male judges were saying, oh, we're not interested in that, you know, move on to the real thing. We're not interested in the rape. Um, and so that is appalling and that needs to, to change. And, you know, the first time, as you know, where this was successfully prosecuted as an international war crime was Rwanda um, in the late 80s, not very long ago, late 90s, sorry, not 80s. Um, and, uh, you know, no coincidence that, uh, in my view, that it, that was a woman on on the bench uh, who, you know, realised that this was something that needed to be looked at. And the first case where this was successfully prosecuted with Akayesu, the mayor of Taba, wasn't initially a case that had um, sexual violence or rape as one of the charges. It was only when uh, these brave women started talking about what happened to them and the case was then stopped and the, and uh, those charges eventually added. Yes, I mean, I can know from my own experience at the domestic level that it absolutely makes an enormous different difference or can make a difference having um, a female judge when you're talking about um, when you have a client who's um, been subjected to um, extreme um, violence, female client. Um, and we can see looking at, um, at cases across the board, including cases before the Supreme Court, that the um, having female judges um, does make a difference and we're you know a very we still have a very long way to go in terms of getting um, a representative number of women on the bench in um, in the UK but Caroline I wonder um, if you can contextualize this at the international um, level um, is this a, a fair assessment do you think of what's happened under international law and in the international um, um, criminal justice system is there a problem with uh, with with rape being taken seriously and gender violence being taken seriously I, I certainly think it's a fair assessment. Uh, I think the, the facts almost speak for themselves. Um, the only thing I, I really do see a change, uh, and even if that's, uh, it will take some time before we, we can show, that will show results, but I think there is an, a, a definitely a change in, in attitude. Whilst it was said before, like rape is sort of like one of those things that happen in war, and it wasn't actually not taken that seriously. I think now, if you look at the International Criminal Court, for instance, they have a whole committee of uh, advisors on SGBV, sexual and gender-based violence. Uh, if you look at uh, the, the UN mission in Iraq, um, that it's also part of the, the mission, sexual and gender-based violence as a spe- specialized unit. 
there is training now everywhere. Uh, also in terms of the increase of women being part of the process, um, especially on the, the bench side and, and the prosecutor side, it's definitely increasing. On the defense side, um, interestingly enough, uh, it, it's still rather male, but then you see the more junior stuff, they tend to be female. So I do think with time, like they will also take over these roles. Um, so yes, so I do agree, um, but I also think that, that we are moving in a different direction. Christina, I want to give you um, the, the the last word, um, if, if, if you like. I mean, the, the books had incredible and rightly so, incredible reviews, and you've um, spoken um, at numerous uh, events. Um, but I mean, what what do you hope the wider impact of your of your book will be um, on on affecting change? I want people to be aware that this is happening on such a scale. I mean, the the fact that people are so shocked when they read it that, you know, people don't know that this is going on. And as I've said before, that actually I could have spent the rest of my life writing this book. It's happening in so many places. I focused on 12 countries, but uh, there are many more places that it's happening in. And we need to change the situation so that at the moment, as Caroline said, you know, things are improving, but it's still the case that um, accountability is the exception rather than the rule. And that needs to end. I'm hopeful that the changes in the American administration from having a president who was himself um, accused of uh, a number of sexual assault charges and to having somebody that considers this to be a really important issue and um, has a woman vice president who has herself been a prosecutor and speaks a lot about the need for justice for sexual violence. Um, I'm hoping that that might kind of lead to a a change internationally and more focus because I honestly don't think until, you know, we're seeing um, some things happening and developments in different countries through the incredible bravery and persistence of um, usually just a few women. But it, for it really to change, it needs more than that. It needs the people in power to really take um, make this an important issue and to start um, taking it seriously and saying that, you know, we can't accept this in the 21st century. Absolutely. That's a a great um, way to end. I mean, this sort of testimony that you've set out in the book can't fail to move anybody. It is an uncomfortable read, although not without beacons of light in in some of the people that you meet, including one of the very brave doctors who um, has been working on reconstructive surgery for for these women and children. But it's, it's hugely important for anybody to read, including anybody working in the media, justice system, whatever role they play, but also for the general public. Um, because the stories of the rape and conflict are, I think, in many senses mapped on to the stories of rape, um, which continue after conflict, rape and peace, but they can also be mapped onto the stories of violence against women everywhere, um, including um, in the UK. So thank you both very much um, indeed. And Christina, best of luck. and, um, And we look forward to reading your next book. 